Hey, everybody, and welcome back to Gear 30 on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Okay, today we are continuing our series on the current state of helmet tech, and our guest is Dr. Steve Mady, who is the co-founder of WaveCell. And if you haven't heard of WaveCell, well, then you need to listen to this conversation. And if you have heard of WaveCell, but kind of assumed it was just the latest newfangled gimmick in helmet tech, well, then you definitely ought to listen to this conversation, because I think your mind is about to be changed. Steve and I discuss his own background and the origins of WaveCell, the ongoing development of that technology, and Steve in this conversation articulates what might be the best case I've ever heard for why these days we are hearing so much about rotational forces and their critical role in brain injuries. For all of us who are mountain biking and skiing and snowboarding and banging our heads around, this is an incredibly important piece of the puzzle. And like I said, I don't think I've ever heard it articulated as well as Steve does in this conversation. Finally, Steve and I also discuss exactly how WaveCell compares to other very popular mitigation systems, namely MIPS and Choroid. So this is another really good one in this series. And so let's go ahead and get to my conversation with Dr. Steve Mady. Here we go. Well, Steve, how are you today and where are you today? I'm doing great. I'm in... Uh... Portland, Oregon, Lake Oswego. It's a beautiful day out there. Sunshine, 75 degrees. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a good one. Where are you? I'm in my uh, office in my uh, orthopedic clinic. Okay. Well, you know, we are here to talk about wave cell. And so why don't you go ahead and kind of give us the kind of summary of this before we, you know, really dive down into the rabbit hole. How do you talk about wave cell at a kind of broad level? Uh, wave cell is a it's a technology to try to reduce concussions from head impacts as much as possible. That's really what wave cell does. Okay, tell us a little bit about what set you on this journey to kind of get to this point to you know come up with this new solution to addressing the problem that you've just stated. What's your own background? So I'm an orthopedic surgeon. I worked in trauma a lot. Uh, I trained out in Iowa, um, grew up in New York City, but then went to Iowa for my residency. And when I was in Iowa, I got pretty interested in research. And then I met um, uh, a gentleman from Germany who was getting his PhD in biomechanics. And we sort of hooked up together and worked on a project and kind of worked well together. Uh, the project was a a fixation device for the elbow for people with elbow fractures. We did some research together on it, seemed to go really well. And so when I finished residency and he finished his PhD, I asked him if he would come out to Portland, Oregon with me and we would start a research lab and we would start investigating problems and trying to come up with solutions. And so he did. And that happened back in two, 1999. And we've been out here ever since. I do clinical orthopedics, but we have a laboratory where we do research. And then we identify problems and we develop solutions. And then we try to commercialize those solutions. And we've been doing that very successfully 
for a number of years. And back in the early 2000s, he was doing some brain research, traumatic brain research in, in animals. And he was asked to come up with a mechanism to injure the brain. And in doing that, he came up with this hammer that would hit a slice of a, a rat brain that was still living um, and then see what kind of damage could be induced and then see if you could put drugs on there that would mitigate the damage that was caused. But in looking at that, you know, we both looked at it and we said, well, you know, that's, that's great to be able to quantify that, but that's not really the way the brain is injured. You don't, you don't hit a slice of a brain and then displace it like that because the brain is in fluid in the skull. And it behaves completely differently than if it was just on a Petri dish or it wasn't surrounded by fluid in a closed cavity. And so when we started thinking about that, it, it just occurred to both of us that, you know, well, wait a minute, it, it, it is really different. Like if you were going to hit a brain slice on a Petri dish, the more padding you could put between the hammer and the Petri dish, the less damage you would cause. But in the brain, it doesn't work that way. In the brain, what happens is that if you hit the head straight on and you don't cause it to spin or rotate, you really haven't done any damage to it. So you actually have to create a moment or a temporary spin from the hit to cause the concussion or the traumatic brain injury or the diffuse axonal injury. And then we started thinking, but, but helmets really aren't designed to stop the spin of the head. They're designed to absorb the impact. Now, absorbing the impact is good because the less force that goes into the hit, the less damage. But you can only absorb so much force. But because paradoxically, the brain really isn't injured by just going straight back and straight forward, helmets were not designed to stop the spin of the head. And if you think about it, a lot of helmets actually increase the grip. So if you, if you just hit the, the ground with your head, you would probably skip over that. Now, you would create a little bit of a spin because the, there's always some degree of spin when you hit. But the head is actually pretty slick. Hair is slick. It's oily. It's by design, right? So it's that decreases the friction. But a lot of foam helmets actually increase the friction. They grab your head and they grab the concrete. So they, add, they decrease the force, but then paradoxically, they're increasing the spin of the force that's left. So we thought, well, you know, that's a great opportunity. We can address the issue. Let's not take away the force absorption layer, but let's try to decrease the amount of spin that gets imparted from a hit. And that's how we came up with, with WaveCell. So help me understand some timeline stuff on this. When did you guys, you've already said clearly, you know, we sort of created a lab to start addressing any variety of different types of injuries and, and seeing how we might address them from protecting the elbow to protecting the brain potentially. So when did you really start on this particular path to wave cell? Uh, it was about 2005 when we started looking at concepts to decrease the, the spin that could be imparted to the head. Um, no, actually, I think it was 2002. Yeah, it was 2002, because I think that's when we applied for our first patent. Um, and we applied for a patent, actually, to try to decrease the spin by creating a helmet within a helmet. 
And it turns out that in the same month we applied for our patent, that MIPS and Haladin had applied for their patent a month earlier, and they were actually issued the patent. But we still were kind of fascinated by it, so we still did some work on it. And what we found when we started to do the work on it is that when we tried to put a helmet within a helmet, the two layers would stick together. And it was actually really discouraging because we're like, well, this is a great idea. But what happens is in impacts, the forces are so great that you actually stick in a couple of the first couple of milliseconds. And that imparts the spin and then it releases and the slip starts to work after that. But when the real rubber hits the road, so to speak, the first 0.03 milliseconds, these layers we created would stick together. And we're, we thought, well, it probably doesn't really do any good because the, the force overpowers the whole system and it sticks anyway. But then Michael got the idea to start using a honeycomb structure because it can kind of crush and it can kind of shear on itself. So we started out with this aluminum honeycomb. And when we started to use aluminum honeycombs, they would really absorb force fantastically because they're designed to collapse in a sequential fashion. But they were also really weak in shear. So it would, it would break the ability for any force to grip the head and spin it. But so we love that. We love the aluminum honeycomb. The problem is it's very heavy. And it's expensive. And so it, from a practical standpoint, it really didn't work. So we kind of were working on other projects and we're mulling over and thinking about this. So then Michael wanted to decide to try some different materials. So we tried a whole host of different materials and papers and plastics and everything we could think of to try to reproduce what the aluminum honeycomb could do. But we couldn't really find a structure that fit everything that we needed because we need something that absorbs energy. We need something that shears on itself internally. We need something that's cheap. We need something that's light. And we need something we can form into a sphere. So he, we thought about what we wanted, and then he reversed engineered a couple of different patterns that would allow a honeycomb to be created out of plastic and then to be able to be molded into a sphere. And that was sort of the sequence of coming up with wave cell and, and developing. And there's a lot more that goes into that story, but that's sort of the, the beginning of it. Wow. 2002 to 2005, you're kind of working on this stuff and MIPS is basically emerging around the same time. I mean, this is certainly one of the things I wanted to ask you about today, but like MIPS is very much about trying to reduce and mitigate rotational forces. That's very much what you're talking about right now. So can you say a bit about, you know, okay, so is this sort of Coke versus Pepsi here? You know, awfully similar with some very, you know, um, slight differences, I guess, depending on whether you love Coke or hate Pepsi or something. But how should the consumer think about current applications of MIPS versus what you guys have done with WaveCell? The, I think the, the best way to think about it is that when we saw, we, we thought we were ap operating in a vacuum, and I never like to work in a vacuum, right? So if you have the greatest idea in the world and nobody else has the idea, it's probably not that great because they travel in, 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 in packs, right? So I was actually thrilled to see that somebody else was working on the same idea. 
And I was actually thrilled to see that they were moving in the direction of a slip liner because we knew from doing our internal work that slip liners work when there's low energy, but at higher energies, they start to not even they act like they're not there, right? Because they start to stick. And so we thought that's a great opportunity. You have another company that's now trying to enter the commercial space by decreasing spin. So there's something to this. And um, we know from our internal workings that there are certain limitations to it, especially when you get up into bigger impacts and bigger energies. You have to remember that the way like even Virginia Tech works is that it's a relatively low weight that they use when they drop it. And so the lower the weight, the more these slip layers work. But the higher the weight or the higher the force or the higher the energy, the more they tend to stick together in the, in the critical seconds. So think of it like two pieces of plastic on the ground, right? If you, if you put your hand on one of the pieces of plastic, you can easily slide it over the other piece of plastic, right? However, if you put an elephant on top of that piece of plastic, you, cannot, you can't push that elephant because of this, the friction that's involved. So there has to be more than just a slip layer. There has to be something that breaks the contact. So MIPS works on the concept of energy absorption and slip layer. We work on the um, concept of breaking the ability for any force to impart a moment. Now, MIPS does it, but they start to decay as you get to higher energies. But wave cell tends to hold up. Even at the higher energies, it becomes better and better at breaking the ability of that force to cause the moment on the head. Does that make sense? Yeah, but I want you to go through it one more time because I think this is really important. So let me see if I if I if I gave you the task. I, I think you said it clearly, but I, I just want to make sure our listeners are are tracking with you. So let me let me break it down a different way. So when we released with Trek, we did an internal study. And we compared a standard helmet, a helmet with a slip liner, and a helmet with wave cell. And we looked at the rotational and linear accelerations that were developed because those are the things that are going to cause head injury, right? And so what we saw, and, and we, that's a peer-reviewed publication, right? So that's not a white paper that comes out of our lab. That's a paper where we do the study and we send it to a journal, and then they send it to a, a bunch of reviewers around the world, they give comments, and then if they feel like it meets scientific metrics or standards, then they'll publish it in their journal. So we did these tests early on when we released with Trek, and we saw that all three types of helmets are good at absorbing energy. They're relatively similar, and that's because Wave Cell has some EPS in it. The other helmets have all EPS in it. But when it came to rotational acceleration, which is what we think is the real culprit, some people call it use rotational velocity. We like to look at rotational acceleration. That is the amount of increasing speed of rotation. We found that as we increased the energy of, and the drop height and the weight, that wave cell did really, really well at the higher energies and the higher drop heights compared to the other ones we looked at. So there is this delta that starts to develop when you start to increase the energy in the system. More weight, higher speed, more real world. And so that's, that, that's, 
that's where the difference comes from. So it's 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 not. I wouldn't call it Coke and Pepsi. I would. I, I don't know if I can really come up with a good comparison. Yeah. Well, we've talked a lot, you know, as we've been doing this series on like the current state of helmet tech. This is one of the things we've really been kind of trying to triangulate in on, which is like, you know, you think about all these different safety certifications and the different types of tests and the rest. And it's like, I think one of the things that has hopefully become clear to our listeners is that all of these different manufacturers, right, all interested in trying to mitigate and reduce head injuries we're all going to be optimizing for certain different things, right? And so you can make a helmet that's going to optimize for, you know, the the European helmet tests and safety standards. You can make a different helmet that is going to kill it and get the best marks for the, you know, the US or North American standard. And so I think one of the things you're talking about here is like if I've heard you correctly, you're saying wave cell really starts to distinguish itself. The higher the forces, the higher the impact. So whether more velocity, that's where wave cell is separating itself. In that's the claim. No, but that, but but that's the claim, and it's it's not a it's it's I guess you can call it a claim, but it's a it's a finding, right? It's so a, or fact, so, we call these facts. It, well, okay, so <laughs> things that are absolutely proven you call laws, right? So Newton has laws of physics, right? They're laws because they've been tested so many times and they come out the same every time it's a law. Other than that, it's really a theory, right? But theories can be tested over and over again, right? And so what we're doing is we're, we're putting out a concept and we're testing it in a laboratory. And what we're doing is we're taking all of the things that we can look at in the real world, the things that we can actually test and measure, and then making assumptions based on what we're seeing, right? So we're making the assumption that the majority of head injury is caused by the rotation, not by the sheer impact, right? So if you have a huge impact on the head and you don't cause rotation and you don't split the skull, you're really not going to get any head injury. That seems really weird, right? But yes. did you see the egg? Did you see the egg video yeah. on our on yeah. our website? Which is really so the, interesting. The reason the reason that we came up with the egg video is because the egg video shows that when you put very fragile things in a system that's enclosed in water without air, and you don't break the outer shell, you can hit that thing as hard as you want, but you can't injure those eggs, right? That thing's dropped from, I think, eight feet, and it's 15 kilograms. It's got weight. It's got speed. Those eggs, it's got a flexible neck, so there's a little bit of a movement that you can see the eggs sort of shake a little bit. If it didn't have a flexible neck and it was straight on a linear rail, those eggs would not budge. But those things go in there loose. But it's really counter – people don't really understand – that pure linear acceleration in that system does not cause any damage. That's the real take home of that. But as soon as you allow any force to create a moment or a little bit of a spin and it's instantaneous, it's night and day. I was, I was talking to Michael actually this morning about this. And, you know, so in that egg video, it's really the equivalent, you know, you could, it's like, 
dropping the eggs from eight feet, right? So you can imagine that you take an egg and you drop it from eight feet onto the sidewalk, it's going to explode. You can imagine if you took the egg yolk out and you dropped it on the sidewalk, it's going to explode. But as soon as you put it into fluid, you close the system and you drop it and you don't allow any spin on the system, the eggs don't move nowhere. So I was talking to Michael this morning and I said, I was thinking about this interview and I said, you know, Michael, I think it might be more impactful if, if people understood that if you took a person and you dropped them from 100 feet and they hit the ground, they're probably going to die, right? No matter how you land, generally you're going you're gonna to die. But if you took somebody and you put them in like a closed container or you put them in a bathysphere and you filled it with fluid and you gave them some oxygen and they're suspended in fluid and you drop them from 100 feet, they'd be fine. And it doesn't, you think about it and you, I know that right, even when I thought it through my brain, I thought to myself, no, there's no way you're going to crash through the water and you're going to hit the bottom and you're going to like hit the concrete like there was nothing there. But it doesn't work that way. Because the fluid can't go anywhere. And you can't go through the fluid because you're the same specific gravity. That's why we float when we're in water. So we don't have this displacement. If there was nothing in the container that you dropped from 100 feet, you would be the same as not having a container. But as soon as you put fluid in it, everything that's bathed in that fluid behaves as one. And you can't compress the water together. People talk about cavitation on the other side. But when I look at that egg video, there's no cavitation in that egg video. The eggs just don't, nothing happens to them. They don't even move. So that's, that's the concept is that this, it's the spin that you're imparting is really causing all the damage, not some of the damage. So it's specifically to the brain. I mean, if I'm, if I'm sitting here right now and you got on a ladder 10 feet above me and dropped a 15 kilogram weight on my head we're going to probably crack my skull, right? We're going to crack the container. Yeah, if you crack the container, it's a different story. But you yep. got to remember that the vast majority of head injuries have no crack in the container. Yep. The skull generally doesn't get cracked. Yeah. And so if we're thinking about a ski accident or a bike crash, right? And you're asking us to ask, how often is there an actual cracking of the skull? And you're saying pretty infrequently. Very infrequently. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Very. Infre- I can't remember the number. I think it's, I think all head injuries, there's only a cracking of the skull in 11% of them. But that's in all comers, right? That's people who are in 60 mile an hour accidents and yep. all these. But the vast majority of concussions are caused without a skull fracture. Yep. So, and with that, when you don't fracture the skull, you can't shake the brain back and forth. It's, it's, it's like a woodpecker, right? A woodpecker can hit a tree, they hit the tree at 3,000 Gs. 3,000 times the force of gravity. They don't get a concussion. The reason is, is because their skull is suspended off the back of their head. And it's like in a, it's like a bungee cord. So when they hit with their bill, the force gets transmitted to the back of the skull, which suspends the brain and the skull from some basically elastic components in the back. So the skull will go back and forth in a pure linear fashion with no spin. If you're on a bungee cord and you jump off of a bridge, you don't spin as you jump. You go straight down with no rotation whatsoever because it's pure linear and then you're pure linear back up, right? That's what happens in a woodpecker skull. So there's 
there's linear displacement pure back and forth. And when I say pure in, in terms of the physics term of linear acceleration, but there's no rotational component to it. There's no rotational acceleration. There's no spin. It, it, it's a brilliant design. So what we're trying to do is we're trying within the confines of what a helmet has to do, we're trying to break the ability for any force to create spin. And that, that, that works by decreasing the force as much as possible in the thickness you're given and then breaking the ability of that force to cause rotation to the head. I'm so delighted that we've been talking about woodpeckers now. I'm embarrassed to say that it has never occurred to me as we've been doing all this thinking and talking about helmets and brain injuries recently. I have not for one second thought about the example of the woodpecker and it's a fantastic example. Like literally ramming <laughs> ramming your head repeatedly like that's what you do in life. But, but, do you, but do you know, 3,000 Gs, do you know how, what kind of force that is? It's like a bullet. And they don't get a concussion. You know? Interesting. So, yeah. So because, again, it's because the way the brain is oriented in the skull. If you don't fracture it, you have to impart a spin to it. And when I say spin, I'm not like talking about spinning a golf ball or a tennis ball or anything like that. I'm talking about that momentary little bit of a zip right there, which can wreak havoc on the brain. Yeah. I want to come back for a second on something you said when we were talking about testing of helmets and the rest. And you twice, I believe, used the phrase like real world. And we're talking about like real world impacts and forces, which, you know, gives an opening at least to understand that one way in that you think that perhaps some of these safety standards or some of the ways that helmets are currently being tested, you know, it's, op it's an open question. And you're like, well, maybe you think we ought to be creating larger impacts or creating bigger forces. And are you able or willing to say here, like, yeah, it is something that we are concerned about. And we find that real world impacts and crashes are actually happening with higher forces than are being tested for in the lab. Absolutely. Huh. I mean, yeah, I mean, if you're, I mean, if you're, you're in a motorcycle and you hit a pylon at 60 miles an hour, that's a lot more force than you're ever going to see in any of the motorcycle helmet testing standards. Same with a bicycle. If you get hit by a car doing 40 and you're wearing a helmet, that's a lot higher than a lot of the standards that are out there. But you have to remember that standards are written to be able to be repeatable and for everybody to be able to use them, right? So they're hard to put in place. They're better than not having anything, but clearly they're not optimized. Let's go back now. You've touched on this a little bit at the very start of this conversation. I'd love to now, given everything you've just said and we've gone through, which has been, I think, really, really good and helpful, you know, I think for a lot of us that are paying some amount of attention or a whole lot of attention in terms of what's going on with helmet tech, rotational forces has been like the biggest freaking buzz term we've heard for several years now. And I think you've done an incredibly good job of articulating like, yeah, this is why. This is why this is such an important thing for us to be thinking about. So I think that's been a, even that in and of itself has been a real contribution 
to this series in helping people understand like this isn't just the latest flavor marketing flavor of the month term you know so anyway thank you for that but given everything you've just said i'd love to kind of go back and talk about the development the evolution the various iterations of wave cell itself you know and kind of where we are in the most up-to-date well i guess version of wave cell so talk a bit about how you got there again and i know you touched on this early on but now i think with everything else you've told us, it would be interesting to go back and be like, all right, this all makes a lot of sense. Now, tell me again about what you guys are actually doing and what you're putting into helmets, various helmets today. Well, I mean, what we, we put in the current tech of WaveCell right now, it's, it's, a, it's a flexible, plastic, honeycomb. It's a cellular structure. It's not even a honeycomb anymore. That's why we call it WaveCell. We started with a honeycomb which is that hexagonal shape that's in a, a beehive or something like that, really good at absorbing energy because they tend to collapse sequentially from the top to the bottom. Um, but we, we created a different cellular structure, which is also very good with collapsing columns. But the unique thing about wave cell is we made it very weak in shear. So if you stand on it, it's strong. If you start to jump on it, it starts to collapse and absorb your energy. But if you stand on it on the side, it starts to, to crush on itself. So that breaks the ability for anything that comes at an angle to grab the head and start to rotate it. So we started with um, we started with standard different types of honeycombs. Like I said, we used aluminum, and we used paper, and we used different metals, and we used plastics, and we used everything we could. So we, we, we looked at these honeycomb structures, but then they're very stiff, right? Because honeycomb structures, they, they use them in structural panels. You use them in wings, right? Because they're, they're very strong. You use them in pan for, for, for strength. So we created a wave structure in it that allows it to actually fold into a, a sphere. Classic honeycombs, when you start to bend them, they're kind of like a Pringle chip. Like you bend them one side, they'll come up on the other side. Wave cell was designed so that the cells can fold on themselves and they can form a sphere when you start to bend them. So they bend into a sphere. That's why we're able to put it into the, into the helmets, right? So we used all different types of, once we arrived on plastic. So we, we have constraints, right? We have weight constraints. We have breathing constraints. We have cost constraints. So we tried to come up with the strongest plastic we can find within a reasonable cost, the best glue we can find at a reasonable cost. And something that we could put together that we could mass produce, which we could then fit into a 25 millimeter or 30 millimeter thick helmet. And that was sort of the iteration of, of wave cell. But we have a, a wall full of stuff we tried. I remember the first time I saw, you know, this wave cell stuff. And we'll include photos of this in the show notes to this episode for people who want to check this out. First time I saw it, you know, I kind of had this sort of immediate or visceral reaction of like that kind of looks like choroid you know which and i don't know if choroid is something only being used in smith helmets right now um or if there are other manufacturers imp implementing that but m maybe given a rather arbitrary slight similarity in terms of appearance or maybe there are really important similarities and differences here but could you talk a little bit about what you regard to be some of the similarities and or differences between choroid and wave cell? 
Well, coroid is a it's a cellular structure. It's a it's a kind of a honeycomb. It's a series of straws that are glued together and then cut. It's very stiff material. It's very strong material. It's good absorbing energy. So it's good, you know, the way foam is good at absorbing energy. Chloride is good at absorbing energy. Um, but chloride's not flexible, and it's not designed to shear on itself. It's very stiff when you step on it, and when you come into it 90 degrees, it's also very stiff. Wave cell is very weak in shear. So it becomes really hard to grab one edge of it and then pull the other edge. It starts to shear on itself at the moment of impact. That's why wave cell... It's, it's, it's anisotropic. It doesn't have the same material properties depending on the way you test it. So when you test it in shear compression, it's extremely strong, but when you start to shear it, it becomes very weak. That's the major difference between chloride and wave cell. We're, we're trying to break the ability of a force to create a moment on an object, in this case, the head. Yep. And wave, wave cell is really good at breaking that, that, that ability to grab. There was a lawsuit um, brought, I don't, know how long ago it was now and my understanding of this and so please correct me if i've got some of these details wrong but my understanding is that the lawsuit was not brought against wave cell in particular but against a manufacturer using wave cell in their helmets um and i suspect if some other folks saw this they are probably sitting here thinking like what was up with that and, you know, I think there is always good reason. I mean, it's one of the things we do here at Blister. Like, we are just deeply skeptical about pretty much every marketing claim that comes in front of us. So, I'd love to have you tell us a little bit about that situation and where it's relevant to somebody thinking about like, just trying to make a good decision, right? And that's what we're trying to do in this series, help people give them more information and make them put them in a better position to go pick up the helmet that sounds safest or best for them. So what can you tell us about this situation? So um, I don't know, like I'm guessing at what you're talking about. So um, I know there was a lawsuit filed against a manufacturer. Um, it was not against WaveCell, but I think that was retracted. Okay. And I think it was based over claims that were made. Um, but at WaveCell, we're very clear at what we say we're doing and we're trying to do, right? We're trying, I mean, our slogan is chasing safest, right? We're trying to make the safest helmet out there. I'm not going to say we make the safest helmet out there because in order to do that, I have to conduct a test that we can't conduct. So all I can do is I can infer the way that we know the brain gets injured and then test that in the laboratory using accelerometers and other things that don't test human subjects. And based on that, I can tell you that when we take those numbers of linear and rotational acceleration and we plug them into formulas that have been, been developed to try to predict the head injury based on what those numbers look like, we drastically drop your potential risk of concussion based on those calculations. And that's as far as we'll go in any of the statements we make. So we'll stand, be, we'll stand behind the science that we say. Um, and, you know, I can quote out of the paper, you know, how many times, what the percentage of re reduced rotational acceleration, what the percentage of reduced linear acceleration. And you can get the papers and read them. We, we put them on our website. They're for public consumption. 
And we also did that with Burton when we released with Burton. We ran the same series of tests as well. And the paper speaks for itself in terms of the reduction in linear and rotational acceleration given the type of test setup that we used. I, I can also tell you, and this is very interesting, is that there have been a couple of researchers now who have reproduced our first paper internally in their own lab without even telling us. They just did it, and they got the same exact results we got, and they're going to publish those. So now you're having independent laboratories that are saying, you know, what those guys said is true. They didn't overextend their claims, but what they said in their paper about the reductions when you test under those standards, we got the same results. That's a big statement. Okay. I think at this point, I'd love to see if you would like to highlight or talk about one or two wave cell helmets in particular for whatever reason, either something you just think is particularly cool or interesting or that was complex. But if I asked you to single out one or two helmets, does anything come to mind? No, not really, because I I really love the designs that Trek has come up with, and I love the designs that Burton has come up with, and I know they're iterating on those designs. And all of them, I think, are really cool. I I think that the way they adopted it into the helmet is really cool. Um, We're actually uh, about to release our own type of helmet that's not in any one of those spaces. Um, And I think that's going to be a huge deal. Um, But that's as much I'll say about that. But actually, that helmet we will make and produce from beginning to end right in our own factory. And I think that'll be... I think that'll be a huge game changer. Um, And given what we've learned now about the way WaveCell performs and so forth, um, you know, there's just going to be iterations coming out year after year now. I mean, that's, you know, on on both ends, both on the WaveCell side and on the the helmet design side, because it's, you know, we've reached this inflection point. And, you know, um, people seem to love it. I mean, shit. I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of wave cell helmets that have been sold. People like the feel. I, you know, I pull people off the street who I don't know. I go, "What do you think about that helmet?" They're like, "I love this helmet. I love, I love the way it makes me feel. I love the comfort that it has." Um, it, it seems to be a hit across the board. Um, so we're going to basically ride that wave. If you had to think about where we're going to be five years from now in terms of helmet technology, what do you imagine will be the biggest differences in the helmets we have today versus, say, five years or 10 years from now? Um, Well, you know, I think that helmet technology has not changed a lot in 40, 50 years, right? We have have padding, right? That's, That's what we designed helmets to pad against the force. And like I said before, anything that reduces the force is a good thing because the less force you have to be able to create a rotational acceleration, the better off you have. Um, But helmets are going to be optimized to reduce the rotational acceleration associated with the force that gets transmitted to the head. And they have to be done within a certain, there's there's confines, right? I could build you a one foot thick helmet yeah. and it would be unbelievably safe, but you're not going to wear it. So it becomes <laughs> impractical, yeah. right? So what we're really, our mission statement at WaveCell is to build the safest helmet that people will wear. 
So we have to build things that have a certain thickness. We have to build things that have a weight, that have a ventilation, that have a look. All of those things are extremely important without sacrificing any of the benefits that, that wave cell can hand over. So you're going to see you're going to see more and more helmets that are going to have some type of rotational mitigating device in them. And people are going to look at what's happening in the industry and they're going to iterate on it themselves and they're going to try to come up with other stuff themselves. Um, and I think that's a good thing. Uh, it keeps everybody on their toes. Um, and I think it's good for the consumer. And I think that helmets, you can buy a lot of helmets now that are safer than they were, you know, 10 years ago um, because of the different technologies that have been added. Um, so I, I think that trend is not going to reverse. I don't think this is a fad. I don't think this is going to go away. I think this is a step forward. And people will continue to iterate on that. Um, and I think that there'll be some things that will come out of it that people didn't see coming. Because it, it, I think we now have the ability to start changing some things that we hadn't thought about before. So um, I think they're going to be lighter. I think they're going to be cooler. Um, and that's, and I know that's where it's going to go. I mean, that's, that's what we're doing. So I know people are going to follow that lead. Steve, really appreciate the conversation. This was really helpful and really informative and yeah, appreciate the time and, uh, look forward to watching you guys continue. And you've already kind of teased some things we can be on the lookout for down the line. And so we will, uh, we'll keep our eyes open. All right. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Okay, it is time now for our What We're Celebrating This Week segment, and it is currently exactly 2.17 p.m. on Thursday, which means I am still drinking coffee at this point, but tonight I'm going to be raising a glass of Whistlepig 15-year-old rye whiskey, and I'm going to be raising my glass to road trips. And while I'm sipping on that 15-year-old rye, I'm also going to be packing and getting ready to hit the road Friday morning, I'm actually going to be driving while you are probably listening to this, and I'm going to be stopping in Salt Lake City and then heading on Saturday to Ketchum, Idaho. I haven't been on a road trip in quite a while now, and I am really psyched. I've got some podcasts ready to go. I've got a couple new audiobooks. I've got some new music, and I'm bringing my mountain bike because I'm planning to get some mountain biking in for the first time since I broke myself about seven or eight weeks ago. So I'm pretty psyched. So here's to road trips and visiting old friends and new friends and new places and to getting back on the bike. And that brings us to the end of this episode of Gear 30. I want to say thanks to Steve for the conversation. Thanks to the strikingly handsome Justin Bob for producing this episode. And of course, thanks to you for listening. From all of us here in Gunnison and Crested Butte, please take good care of yourself and everybody else. And we will talk to you again on Monday over on our Blister podcast, where we have got a really interesting conversation already banked and ready for you over there. So check it out, Monday Blister podcast. And until then, bye, everybody.